0: More information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter two, verses one through twelve. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Good morning.
1: Welcome to Christmas at Redemption. It looks great around here, doesn't it? It's nice to have our own space that we can decorate and not have to put in a box each Sunday as we... Leave it. My name is Chase Ifland. If we haven't met yet, I help oversee small groups, membership, and some of our serve teams here at Redemption, and I have the privilege of kicking off our Christmas sermon series this morning. If you were with us this fall, just last Sunday, we uh, wrapped up our series in the book of Colossians, and it was this incredible series as we looked at the big theological truths present in that book. Things like The cosmic nature of Christ, which is that the world was created by Jesus, for Jesus, and that Jesus reigns over and sustains our universe at this very moment. And now, during the Christmas season, we're going to look at the mind-blowing reality that the cosmic Christ, the one who created all things and sustains all things, was also born as a little boy into our humble, ordinary world. If Colossians was primarily about big theological realities, our Christmas series is going to be about more personal, intimate stories. Each week in our series, and then again on Christmas Eve, we will take a character or a group of characters from the Christmas story and look at the story, the birth of Jesus, from their eyes. And for those of us who are familiar with these stories, it's so easy for them to just become nostalgic, routine stories that we read each year at Christmas, but during these next four weeks, we want to enter into these stories and remind ourselves that this is a real story. That these are real, these characters are real people who really lived and who were really present for the birth of the world's true king. And so we want to ask questions of the stories, like what was it like for these characters? What thoughts and emotions did they have? What choices did they make or did they not make? What was their role in the birth of Jesus? How did they respond to what God was doing in the midst of real human history? And as we do, we'll face those questions and more like them for ourselves. As we enter these stories on the pages of God's Word, we will be challenged to respond to what God has done 2,000 years ago and what God is doing through Christ today. And so today we'll jump in with the wise men. Next week we'll look at Joseph on the 10th, we'll look at uh, Gabriel and Mary on the 17th, we'll do the innkeeper, and then on Christmas Eve again we'll do the uh, multitude of the heavenly hosts from the story. So I hope that you'll join us each week in Advent leading up to Christmas, and then again on uh, Christmas Eve as we dive into these ancient stories and see what they have to tell us and say to us today. So first up is the story of the wise men, or the magi, as they're sometimes called, in Matthew 2. I don't know if this is just me, I, I don't think it is, but do you all have ever have the experience of telling someone about something that you were really excited about, but the other person doesn't share in your excitement? I feel like this happens uh, sometimes with my wife, Maddie. Uh, I might be excited about something that's going on with one of my favorite sports teams or maybe a big weather event coming up, things that I'm interested in, I'm excited about. And I tell Maddie, and she's a kind person, she loves me, so she listens, she tries to understand why I'm excited. She might be excited for me, but I can just tell that the excitement for herself is just not there. She just doesn't get as excited about things like Ollie Gordon leading the nation in rushing or... An El Nino weather pattern possibly meaning more snow for us in Oklahoma this winter. She doesn't get as excited about those things as I do. And judging by the laughs, I think I'm probably not the only one who experiences this with a spouse or friend or coworker, or someone. <clears throat> Sometimes people just don't share the same excitement that we have about certain things. And the story of the wise men from the Christmas story is an example of this very thing. The wise men are excited about what they've seen and what they believe has taken place. And the other characters in the story just don't care. The difference is that what the wise men are excited about isn't something trivial. It's not sports or the weather or whatever you're interested in. It's about the single most important event in all of human history. And nobody else in the story shares in their excitement. Each character or group of characters in the story has a different amount of knowledge about what is taking place in this event in Bethlehem. You have Jewish leaders on the one hand who know all about the prophecies of the coming Messiah, but they have no idea that he's been born just a few miles down the road. Then you have pagan Gentile priests, the wise men on the other hand, who probably know little or nothing about the coming Messiah, but yet God has opened their eyes to see that something big is happening over in Israel. They each come from different places, but they're each called to respond to what's taken place, and they do so, as we'll see in a minute, in very different ways. So here's what we'll see this morning. Something happened in Bethlehem at that very first Christmas. It's a historical event that took place that a baby boy named Jesus was born, and the responses to that event that we'll see in our story in Matthew 2 are really no different than the responses that people in our world have to the birth of Jesus today. Over 2,000 years later, the responses to the story of what happened at that first Christmas really haven't changed. Our response can be joy and worship, like the wise men, or it can be cold apathy, like the priests and scribes, or it can be anger or fear, like Herod. And just like they do, we all come into this room this morning and Different places, like the characters in the story. We come in with different understandings about Jesus, different amounts of knowledge about what the scriptures say about him, different experiences with religion or church or spiritual things in our past. But we all also must respond to the birth of Jesus in some way, because the birth of Jesus is the single most significant event in all of human history. And here's what I know. We can all go through the Christmas season reading the stories of Jesus' birth, hearing sermons that take these stories and try to apply them to our everyday lives, singing songs with lyrics that describe who Jesus is and what he came to do, and we can pack in more lights and parties and gifts than we can handle. And yet when it comes to the good news at the center of all those things, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, we can be totally apathetic. We could not care less. It's possible to sing songs like joy to the world or attend a candlelight service on Christmas Eve but not have our hearts moved to joy because the light of the world is here. Or instead of being apathetic, we can feel threatened by the story. Instead of good news, maybe the Christmas story sounds like bad news because the baby Jesus grew up to become an adult Jesus and the adult Jesus taught some really hard things. Or like the wise men, we can rejoice Exceedingly with great joy at what God has done. So, how will you respond to the Christmas story this year? That's what we want to lean into this morning with the story of the wise men. So, let's dive into the story. Um, As Scott read earlier um, in Matthew 2, Matthew starts out and says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So, first, who are these wise men or magi, as they're sometimes called? Well, most likely they're a group of priest like figures from east of Israel, likely Persia, which is modern day Iran. And when you think of priests, don't think of Jewish priests who were offering sacrifices and reading the scriptures. These were pagan priests who were primarily doing astronomical observation and trying to interpret the stars for their people and see what the stars would have to say about the future so their people could live well in the world. And as they're doing this, they're just doing their jobs. They have observed something in the sky that leads them to believe that an important person is going to be born or has been born in Israel. And people have debated endlessly about what it was they saw in the sky. Was it a natural phenomenon, like a a supernova exploding? Or was it something miraculous that God put up in the sky just for them? And we don't know. But what we do know is God used this star to bring the wise men to Israel to worship Jesus after his birth. I don't know about you, but when I think about this story and a bright star leading the wise men to Jesus, it brings up all the Christmas heartwarming, homie, nostalgic feelings. But something I didn't think about in this story until I read it in a commentary this week was that interpreting the stars, what the wise men are doing in this story, is actually something prohibited by God in the Old Testament. God actually told his people not to do this. Don't look for wisdom or guidance or to tell the future in the stars because God wanted his people to come to him for those things. And the wise men from Persia were probably not followers of Yahweh. They may or may not have known anything about the Old Testament. But nonetheless, the fact that they see this star and presume that it means that someone important has been born is actually something that's out of step with God's law. And yet, God used it to bring them to worship. Why did they come anyway? Was it just because of the star? Uh, We don't know, but this journey was likely close to 1,000 miles, which would be like walking from here, Edmond, Oklahoma, to Pensacola, Florida, or Phoenix, Arizona. It was a really long journey. And Matthew wasn't there to ask them exactly why they come, but I have to think it wasn't just because they saw a cool star up in the sky. They had to have been seeking something. What did this star mean? What could this new ruler in Israel provide for us? Again, these these wise men were not Jews, but it is possible that they might have known a little bit about the prophecies of the coming Messiah. Uh, It's interesting that Daniel, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, uh, Daniel's actually in exile in Persia when he prophesies about the coming Messiah. And so it's possible that those prophecies were passed down through the years and that these wise men knew about this prophecy about the Jewish Messiah. It's also interesting that the prophet Balaam, earlier in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, he was from Persia. And he has an interesting prophecy about the Messiah being a star coming out of Jacob. So maybe they knew about Balaam's prophecy. We just, we don't know. What we do know is that somehow they believe this star represents that a new king of the Jews has been born and they want to go see him. What we do know is that God uses the, these pagan spiritual seekers as key figures in the birth of Jesus. Even though it was off target, God used their spiritual seeking to draw them to himself. But he also redirected the spiritual seeking. They were looking at the stars to decode the times they were living in, and God used the stars to draw them to himself. Although the wise men didn't know everything about who Jesus was and what he came to do, they knew that he was special. They knew that what happened with the birth of this baby who had been born in Israel was unique. They knew he wasn't just Israel's next ordinary king. And although their perspective, the perspective of the wise men, is a bit limited, if we zoom out for just a minute, we get the bigger picture of who this baby is, because Matthew, the one who compiled this story for us, sets up his gospel, the book of Matthew, in a way that makes it clear who Matthew thinks this baby is. And that this story, the Christmas story, is not just a story about a baby who would be a new king in Israel, but it's actually the story of the beginning of God's greatest act in human history. So look at how Matthew sets up his gospel. If you back up just a minute to Matthew 1, verse 1, you'll see that the opening words of the gospel of Matthew says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that word translated genealogy there is the Greek word genesis in Greek. And you don't have to know anything about Greek to hear in that word genesis the English word genesis which is, of course, the first book of the Bible that tells us about the creation of all things. And most people, both Jews and Gentiles, who were living in the first century when Matthew was writing his gospel, were using a Greek version of the Bible called the Septuagint, and they would also have associated this this word, genesis, with the first book of the Bible, Genesis. So you could easily translate the first verse of Matthew as the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And for us, we miss that connection, reading in English 2,000 years later, but more than likely, if you were reading Matthew or hearing Matthew read in your church service or synagogue in the first or second century, you would have immediately thought of the book of Genesis when this uh, first verse was read. And we're not doing a deep dive on Matthew, so we can't get far into this, but most scholars all agree that what Matthew is doing here is intentional. Intentional. There were a lot of other words that meant genealogy that were much more common, but Matthew chose this one because what he's saying is this is the start of something new. The story that I'm about to tell you in my gospel is the new Genesis. Another hint in the first verse of Matthew's gospel that gives us some insight into who Matthew thinks this baby is, is that he starts out saying it's the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And that word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not a popular cuss word like it's become today. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Messiah was the long-awaited rightful ruler, not just of Israel, but of the whole world, who would come and usher in a new period of human history when God, the relationship between God and his people would be restored. And so just for a moment, try to imagine that you are a first-century Jew Hearing Matthew's gospel read aloud for the first time in a service like this one, and the first words that you hear from Matthew's gospel is, the book of the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah. But that would have gotten your attention pretty quickly. You probably would have leaned over to a person next to you and and said, whoa, what what is this story going going to be about? What is he claiming about this person Matthew's point in just one verse, just a few words, is that if Genesis is the creation of the world, the story that Matthew is telling us is about the Messiah who has come to remake the world. And it gets even more provocative than that because the introduction to the book of Matthew goes on and at the end of chapter 1, which is the story we'll look at next week, Matthew tells us that the Messiah is no ordinary man like most people were anticipating, He wasn't conceived by man and woman, but by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. And then Matthew applies the famous prophecy from Isaiah to this baby, calling him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew's just doing what any good writer would do. He's setting the stage for his story, for the gospel that he's about to tell. And as he does so, he's reminding his readers of Genesis. He's reminding them that God created this world, and he created you and me, and that it was a good creation but that the creation was spoiled by sin and is now plagued with suffering. But then it's like Matthew's announcing, but hang on, there's good news here. The Messiah has entered into human history in order to set right what has been made wrong. God didn't leave us or abandon us. He's here to rescue us. God is taking human history somewhere and the climax of his plan of remaking and redeeming this broken world is a baby named Jesus. And although the wise men didn't fully understand all of that, they come onto the scene in chapter 2 and Matthew holds them up as an example as those who are rightly excited about what God is doing within human history to make all things new. The opening chapters of the book of Matthew are an announcement that God has not abandoned his creation but has entered into his creation and is taking all of human history somewhere. He's providing redemption for a fallen world, and he's doing it through Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the college football commercials that refer to co- the college football season as the greatest story ever played. Uh, I'm sorry that even for Georgia fans like Audra over here, winning two, maybe three national championships in a row is not the greatest story. Uh, it's actually a really boring story that we don't want to see over and over again. But the story of Christmas that God became man to rescue and redeem his creation and his people from sin and suffering is the greatest story ever. It was the story that all Israel was waiting for. And the wise men travel a thousand miles to deliver the news to Jerusalem that the Messiah is here. They burst into the city. They ask the leaders in Israel, where is he? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And nobody else cares. Herod acts excited on the outside like others do when they're not excited about something you're talking about. He summons the chief priests and scribes and asks them where the Messiah was going to be born. He says, when he finds out, he he tells the wise men, search for the child. When you've found him, tell me that I can come and worship him. But he's not being genuine. Inwardly, Herod was troubled and he was already plotting how he might kill Jesus. Because a baby who's born king of the Jews is a threat. To his throne and his power. The chief priests and the scribes on the other hand over here, they don't even try to be excited. This is a part of the story that's easy to overlook, but notice this, the wise men come to Herod. they tell him that they believe that the Messiah, the king of the Jews has been born. Herod gathers the chief priests and scribes and he asks them he tells them what's going on. He asks them where is the do, does the Old Testament scripture say the Messiah will be born? And the Jewish leaders tell him, they say the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, which is just five miles down the road from Jerusalem. Yet, they don't bother to go to Bethlehem and see if it might actually be true. There's a rumor that the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel, who they've been waiting for their whole lives is here, and they don't even care. They just go back home and get right back to their lives. But the wise men go. The wise men head towards Bethlehem. The star reappears and points them on their way. Once again, they, they get to Bethlehem. They make it to the end of the journey. Matthew says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They go into the house. They see Mary and Jesus. They fall down and worship Jesus. They open their bags, take out their treasures, and give him gold and frankincense and myrrh to this baby boy. And that's how the story ends. In this story, Herod responds to Jesus with fear and with anger. He's threatened by Jesus. The chief priests and scribes couldn't care less about Jesus. But the wise men, the pagan Gentile priests from Persia, come and extravagantly worship the baby who they knew was no ordinary baby. So what about you? What is your response to the birth of Jesus, the world's true king, the Messiah, God himself born into our world to restore and redeem all that is broken? How have you responded to this story in the past? And as we continue to unpack more of the story in the coming weeks, how will you respond to it again this Christmas? Although the world of the wise men and chief priests and scribes and Herod is very different from our world in many ways, it's also not much different from our world in others. All of the characters in the story were ordinary people living ordinary lives with longings and hopes and dreams and fears just like ours. And the story of God's redemption broke into their lives in different ways to each of them, but they were all faced with a choice to respond. And we're faced with that same choice as well. Will we respond with excitement, like the wise men saying, look what God has done, or apathy, like the priests and scribes, and think, who cares, I'm just trying to get through the holidays, or with fear and anger, like Herod, thinking Jesus as king sounds restrictive and oppressive to me. Well, in the last 10 minutes or so that we have, I want to take each of these sets of characters and extrapolate their responses to our world today. In other words, how do we respond like Herod, or like the chief priests or scribes, or the wise men today? What do do these responses look like for us? So first, let's start with the chief priests and scribes. What does an apathetic priest or scribe look like in Edmond, Oklahoma in 2023? Well, one, an apathetic response to the good news of Jesus' birth looks like being focused on less important things over the most important things. The priests and scribes were too busy to go over to Bethlehem to see what had happened. And the work that they were doing, that they were busy with, was really important. They were the God-ordained religious leaders amongst God's people. Their task was to mediate between God and Israel and to preserve God's word for future generations. It was really important work what they were doing. And yet there was something much more important. More important than their work for God was the God who had ordained their work, and when he shows up just a few miles away in their lifetimes, in their nation, they just shrugged their shoulders and went back to work. Again, Bethlehem was only five miles from Jerusalem, which means that the wise men were willing to walk from here to Pensacola or Phoenix to worship Jesus, but the priests and scribes weren't willing to walk from here to Lake Arcadia to find out if it was really the Messiah. They prioritize the important things over the most important things, and we so easily do the same, don't we? Work, family, friends, hobbies, all of these things, good gifts given to us by a good God can easily consume our lives and crowd out room for the giver of the gifts. And this season in particular, the hustle and the bustle and the busyness of the season, which is all fun and so fitting, it can easily take away any time to reflect on the reason why we celebrate in the first place. So this Christmas season, how can you make space in your days and weeks to reflect on what is most important? What do you need to say no to so that you can say yes to being with your family and your church family? Where can you make space in your day each day to be alone with just you and your God? The two, the priests and the scribes in the story, substituted religious routine for real encounter with God. Again, the Messiah has been born just a few miles away, and they go right back to their sacrifices and temple services. They were more comfortable doing the things they had grown up doing than they were with actually meeting the God to whom those things were supposed to point to. I think this one challenges us living in the Bible Belt. I know it's challenging to me. Are we going through the routines of coming to church and praying and reading our Bibles, but keeping God himself at arm's length? Has the religious things just become a routine that's so ingrained that we keep coming and we keep doing them, but we don't really know why we're doing it? Or do we gather as a church? Do we open God's word? Do we pray? Do we spend time with the Lord and his people believing and expecting that when we do, we're encountering the cosmic Christ who created us and all things? One way to look at this is that the priests and scribes had head knowledge about God, but they didn't have affections towards God. When Herod asked them where the Messiah was going to be born, they give the right answer. But when the Messiah is actually born, they don't have any response. There's no joy like the wise men. There's no even fear like Herod. There's no worship So we respond to the Christmas story in the way the priests and the scribes respond if we know a lot of things about the story but we don't have hearts that are responding to the story in joyful worship. And so in this season, let's not throw out the religious routines. Routines are good, but let's do the things. Let's come to church. Let's read the scriptures. Let's interact with the Advent guide. Let's pray and sing Christmas carols. Let's be with God, not because it's something we always do or we know we should do at this time of year, but because we approach those things as God-ordained means of encountering God's grace in our lives. Let's stir our affections for Jesus and not just go through the motions. What's the result of responding to the birth of Jesus with apathy, like the priests and scribes? They miss out. And we miss out too. The wise men worship Jesus and are filled with joy. The priests and the scribes go home with their hopes and their longings yet unfulfilled. All they ever wanted was right there, and they missed out on it. Well, those are some ways that we may be tempted to respond to what God has done in Christ apathetically. What about Herod? How can we respond like Herod, threatened, angry, fearful? Well, number one is Herod did not want to yield to a greater authority in his life. And we all have the same resistance in our hearts. The announcement of Jesus' birth was actually bad news to Herod because a king, a new king in Israel was a threat to Herod's power and his control. And in the same way, if we accept Jesus as the king of our lives, it can feel threatening to us as well. Because if Jesus is our king, it means he gets to tell us what to do. What to do with our time, our relationships, our money. If Jesus is king, it means we lay down the things in our life that are inconsistent with his kingdom. And that's hard because we all have them. It's easier for us to cling to those things than to release authority and control of our lives to Christ. The attractive things of this world like wealth, possessions, power, sex, fame, all have the potential to steal our hearts and our worship away from Christ. For Herod, it was power and control, but we all have those things. What are you clinging closely to that you need to surrender control over to Jesus in your life in this season? Well, two for Herod, Jesus was not helpful for Herod, and therefore he felt threatened by him. In other words, if Jesus had been born as this promised great military ruler who would no matter what be loyal to Herod and his throne, then Herod would have welcomed news of the birth of this baby with joy. But instead, Herod, Jesus isn't helpful for Herod, and so it's a utilitarian response. He's not helpful for me, and so I don't like him. Herod's asking, what can Jesus do for me? And we can do the same. Jesus can be good if he's a magic genie who gets us out of bad situations. He's good if he gets us to heaven. He's good if he helps our social cause or political agenda. But Jesus as our Lord and King that deserves our worship and obedience. Who wants that? Here's what's happen- here's what happens, though, when we respond to Jesus. Like Herod, when we push him away, we don't give him control. We only call on him when he's useful. We get angry. Herod winds up angry, when we cling to our stuff and our ways instead of relinquishing control to the one who created us, we end up a slave to our stuff and to our desires. If we see Jesus as a utilitarian figure, then we'll get mad at him when he doesn't help us in the ways that we thought he would. Responding to Jesus, like Herod, only makes us angry and bitter. Let's end with the good news, with joy, shall we? I don't know about you, but hopefully you want to be like the wise men in this story. At the end of the story, Matthew tells us the wise men end up coming to Jesus and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's really repetitive. He says the same thing three times. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were happy. They were joyful. They didn't miss out on Jesus and what he came to do. They didn't, they weren't angry at Jesus like Herod. They worshiped him and they were filled with great joy. So how can we respond like the wise men to the Christmas story this year? Well, one is that the wise men believed that it was true. They were willing to believe that it was true. They were willing to travel a thousand miles to make this great journey to find out who this baby was and if it meant anything for them. They were willing to risk the journey. When they got there, they were willing to fall down and worship a little baby they were willing to be led by God, by this bright star in the sky, all of these thousands, this thousand miles, trusting God's lead. They believed that God was doing something cataclysmic in human history, and that it was good news, not for the, just for the world, but for them personally, for these pagan magi from Persia. Do you believe that this story is good news for you? Do you believe that this the birth of Jesus gives us reason to sing joy to the world? Or that Jesus is the hope of all the earth, the the desire of every nation, the joy of every longing heart, like the Christmas hymn says? Or are those just words that we sing each year at Christmas time? Do we really believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God who was born to save the world? If we do, then it ought to lead to the second response, which is, too, that the wise men extravagantly and wholeheartedly worship Christ. They come, and they fall down, and they worship a baby. Think about how crazy that is. Nathan and Macy Jennings, who lead one of our small groups, had a baby on Wednesday, and if I had gone into their hospital room and laid down on the floor and worshipped their baby— I probably would have just been checked into the hospital on another floor while I was there. To the world, the wise men looked like fools. What were they doing worshiping a baby? Not only that, but they gave costly gold and frankincense and myrrh to this baby. What does a baby need with these things? Unlike the priests and scribes who couldn't care less that Jesus had been born, the wise men go to great lengths. They travel a thousand miles to worship him. Unlike Herod, who would not surrender his power to the rightful king of his life, the wise men open their treasure chests and give it all away to this baby boy. And the result was joy. It led to joy. And so in this Christmas season, let's be like the wise men as we respond to the Christmas story. Let's not go through the motions, but let's regularly remind ourselves that the story of Christmas is the greatest news there's ever been. Let's not let the season pass us by and end up missing out like the chief priests and scribes. And as the mystery and the goodness of the story works itself deep into our hearts, let's respond with worship. Let's lay aside anything that stands between us and Jesus. Let's give, pour out our time, our talent, and our treasure for him. Let's gather for worship on Sundays as a church, and then let's scatter into our families and our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and our city, and worship him with everything we have in our everyday lives. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to the Christmas season once again, I pray that you would, just jog us out of any routine. He'll remind us of the wonder and mystery of majesty of what it means that the one who created all things came into our world, not with fanfare or celebration, but as a baby born to a teenage mother in a stable in a tiny village of Bethlehem. Lord, I pray that you would meet us all where we are this Christmas. For those of us who are feeling apathetic to the story pray that you would stir our affections and our hearts for you. Those of us who are struggling to release control of our lives, I pray that you would show us that our greatest joy is found when we trust you with everything that we have. Father, I pray that you would help us respond rightly to what you are doing in the world, that you would give us joy as we do so. Father, may it be so in our hearts this Christmas. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.